0: com slash ACAST.
2: Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. Each week we look at the historic trends and events which created our world today. And this week we're turning to the rise of China, one of the most important events of our lifetimes. In particular, we want to look at a policy announced by President Xi Jinping in 2015 called Made in China 2025. If there is a single policy which has changed our world this century, this is it. So what then is Made
3: in China 2025? The most important thing to understand about this strategic ambition for China is that it aims to turn China into the world's manufacturing superpower and to do so in ways that makes China a lot less dependent upon foreign technology than it had been in the first decades of China's economic growth. In order to understand the significance of this, the shock that the world experienced in 2015 at the announcement of this ambition, in particular the shock in Washington, we need to go back to the 1990s, to the decade when China became more deeply integrated into the trade side of the world economy and relations between the United States and China, where trade was concerned, became permanently normalized.
2: China does deny citizens' fundamental rights of free speech and religious expression. But the question is not whether we approve or disapprove. The question is, what's the smartest thing to do to improve these practices? I believe the choice between economic rights and human rights, between economic security and national security is a false one. You know, as we debate about China here, it's easy to forget that the Chinese leaders and their people are also engaged in a debate about us. And many of them believe that we honestly don't want their country to assume a respected place in the
0: world. If China joins the WTO, but we turn our backs on them, it will confirm their fears. In other words, we must continue to defend our interests and our ideals, but we can't do that by isolating China from the very forces most likely to change it. They said it would this take a miracle is. to bring back manufacturing. I brought back 700,000 jobs. They gave up on manufacturing. He talks about these great trade deals. He talks about the art of the deal. China has perfected the art of the steel. We have a higher deficit with China now than we did before. We have the highest trade deficit China China with Mexico. Lunch. And so and China, China ate your lunch, up. Joe.
2: So those were two clips, one of Bill Clinton at the height of American confidence and power at the turn of the millennium 2000, and another of a debate between President Trump and then Joe Biden, the candidate in 2020, and they were essentially arguing over who was toughest towards China. And I think that just encapsulates this dramatic shift that's happened over the last 20, 25 years in American policy towards China, and therefore the world's relationship with China. And I don't think it's really possible to understand that, Helen, if you're not thinking about some of these key events that shape that shift, particularly 2008 financial crisis, which really gave China, this boosting confidence, because it it had suddenly emerged out of this crisis strong. Its economy was growing, whereas the West was in, in a decline, really, or it seemed that it was in decline. And then you have the elevation of Xi Jinping to power in 2012, and his signature policy comes out three years later, this Made in China 2025. So that's the story. But I think you could, you can't understand it properly if you don't go back even further. You don't paint the picture of how we got to this point. And really, I think it starts with Nixon opening up to China in the 70s. And it's based on this idea, there's this policy called engagement with China. And it's based on this fundamental principle that every U.S. president, from Nixon all the way through to Obama... And it ends after Obama, but it's from Nixon all the way through to Obama, and that's what we're going to deal with in this opening section of the podcast, that open markets lead to open societies. That's the fundamental idea, that Nixon had said that the world cannot be safe until China changes, and the only way to make China a change is to engage with it, to open up to it. You can really say that's proved untrue it's the policy that held all the way through things like Tiananmen Square and various crises all the, all the way up till the 2000 and it holds in when Clinton becomes president in the 90s and he says we can best support human rights in China by engaging the Chinese and this is after Tiananmen Square and it goes all the way through until he grants China permanent normalized relations which is getting it into the WTO Until then, it had been this rolling crisis where every year you have to decide whether you're going to continue dealing with the Chinese in trade terms normally. And that came up every single year. And Clinton changes that. And I think you're now seeing people say, look, this was clearly based on an idea that was wrong, the idea that if you open up economically, then political liberalisation will follow. I think there's a quote from Hu Jintao, the Chinese leader in the 2000s, who had coined this notion of the peaceful rise. But as one Chinese official put it, the peaceful is for the foreigners, the rise is for us.
3: What's really interesting about this story is the way on the American side that it moves from a question about geopolitics into a question about the American economy itself and the impact of, in some sense we might say, China's return as much as China's rise on the domestic economy and then the way it's contained politically domestically in the United States yeah. and then it splurges out in exactly. the in the 2016 US elections. I think there were a number, actually, of crucial junctures in that story that you've just told, Tom. I think the first of them actually comes in the 70s itself And it comes Chairman Mao's death in 1976 because when Nixon and Kissinger were trying to establish relations with China or making their opening to China, they were thinking not in terms of the American economy or particularly the Chinese economy. In fact, I don't think they were thinking really economically at all. It was a kind of move on the geopolitical chessboard around the Vietnam War. But then by the end of the decade, when Deng Xiaoping is effectively the Chinese leader and he's pursuing economic reform. He's conceiving this Chinese development project to industrialize China and to use foreign markets, particularly the United States, American markets in, in order to do that. The Americans are still, and this is obviously the Carter presidency by this point, they're quite encouraging of that. And they're, able, they're willing to make some sacrifices where Taiwan is concerned, in order to do that. And and that point, I think the story changes into us seeing China's growth beginning, China engaging in more trade, particularly with the United States, but not only, obviously, with the United States, with Japan too. And then Tiananmen Square comes along in 1989. And then there's a choice for, which is the George Bush Senior Administration, about what to do about that. Are we going to carry on in this gradual encouragement of China's integration into the trade side of the world economy or are we for human rights reasons going to bring that to a stop and that's the context I think in which the Clinton presidency starts and what's interesting is that Clinton to begin with is on the it's about human rights. Yeah
2: Yeah, as was Carter
3: he makes quite a political play in the 92 election about saying that Bush is wrong about trade with China And then in office, particularly from 1994, he goes off in this completely different direction. And he now wants the annual vote to go through, and he's pushing for permanent trade normalisation as a prelude to China being able to join the World Trade Organisation. And he is basically trying to say throughout that period, once he's made his U-turn, is, look, this is just good for America. This is economically good for America. All that we're doing is keeping the status quo for us, and we're getting some concessions from China in terms of the openness of the the Chinese market. So he says at one point when he's trying to justify permanent normalisation of trade, he says this is a hundred to nothing deal for America when it comes to the economic consequences. And I think really important question to ask it, is this just naivety? Is it complacency? Or is this actually the beginning of a contest within American politics about whose interests line up with yeah. China's integration to the world economy and who might be the losers of that within the United States of that
2: change? Yeah, you think about Bill Clinton now, and there's, you almost want to combine it, don't you? He's, there's a kind of malign naivety. He can't surely believe that it's a hundred to one bet that nobody will lose out from opening up to an economy where wages are so much lower than they are in the States. It would be a manufacturing competitor. It just seems extraordinary. Thinking of Clinton alone in this story, being a kind of archetype for, for this naivety or or whether it's something worse than that, going from this campaigning on human rights, Hillary Clinton herself famously was in China and made a thing of human rights as well. And then she would go on to be Secretary of State pursuing the exact same policy that every US president pursued this engagement policy based on the same idea that the more you open up to China, in the end, the better it will be for human rights. And it's like nothing will disprove this argument. I think there are still people who believe it, even if you have a million Uyghurs locked up in China. It, it just seems it's an argument that's almost impossible to kill in the States. Clinton himself he seems to move so quickly on it when he comes in, going from being so hardline on human rights, similarly to Carter, to being the one who really... The signature in 2000, where he, he grants China access into the WTO permanently, and he has that sort of bonhomie in, in 2000, that sort of that super charm that got him the presidency, and sort of his superpower... And there's this clip that, stand, that sticks in my mind about Clinton, and he's chuckling at the thought of China being able to hold back liberalisation. And he has this phrase where he's saying, "Look, the Chinese are trying to regulate the internet. Good luck with that. It's it's like nailing Jello to the wall," he says. And then lo and behold, China does regulate the internet pretty well, actually. And that's now going to be the sort of the big problem. And that just seems to encapsulate the problem for me. I was reading a fantastic piece by, which I recommend to listeners, by the sort of doyenne of China studies in the US, Orville Shell, And and he was a great supporter of engagement throughout this period. And he now has concluded that much of history, in his view, of Sino-US relations since the 70s was, it was in quotes, a series of Chinese-defined obstacles that the U.S. has been asked to overcome in order to preserve the overall relationship. And I think there's some element of truth there, that it always fell on the U.S. to put aside its concerns about Chinese authoritarianism or human rights abuses. I'm not sure that the Chinese ever really shifted in their position, that the U.S. ever really succeeded in dragging China away from its fundamental beliefs it just deepened the economic relationship.
3: Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of different things going on here. I think that the reason why Clinton took the positions in which he did is a mixture of naivety. But I also think it's because he was deliberately siding with the corporate interests of Mm. big American companies who knew that there were huge opportunities for them in Integrating their businesses into China. When he says, look, this is a hundred to nothing deal for the US, that was true in the sense that the US wasn't making any new concessions about opening its market to China. But the very fact that it was permanently normalizing these trade relations meant the risk that corporations had in terms of relocating production to china was taken away yeah and so that's where you start to get a company like apple that had been quite in its early days a bit of a made in america yep. company starts to move a lot of its production into china and obviously then there's a significant difference between the winners in the united states of the new trade regime encapsulated in china's wto membership And the losers of it, those who have jobs in manufacturing companies in the United States that suddenly find that their companies are relocating those factories to China. There's a significant fall in US manufacturing employment in the first years after normalization of permanent normalization of trade relations. And then I think that what we can see is that there is a domestic political reaction to that in the United States. But it isn't about human rights. It isn't about that question about whether China really is, as Clinton's kind of implying, on some kind of trajectory towards a more democratic form of government. It's focusing on the question about whether China is manipulating its currency or not. Yeah. And whether as China is starting to have a really large trade surplus with the United States that it's in some sense in currency terms, as the critics said, cheating. Yeah. And you start to have some protectionist bills in the US Congress pushed by some quite influential, both on both sides, Republican and Democratic senators, who want the George Bush administration to to take trade action against China if China doesn't basically revalue its currency. Yeah. And that's the one area where the Chinese do make some moderate concessions, that right. they realize that's where the political pressure is coming. So the Chinese changed their exchange rate regime in 2005 but it doesn't change the big picture. And then I think that moment in for the, the American economy actually sits there dormant waiting in a sense for a politician to exploit and that politician becomes Donald Trump yeah. in the 2016 election. But crucially by the time that Trump is announcing his run for the republican nomination it's about a few weeks after made in china 2025 yeah. has been announced so now that political shock that had already been experienced in the early part of the 2000s comes together with a candidate who starts tying the made in china 2025 issue to the job loss issue and says america's losing
2: yeah. here which it was, and he's got. He just delighted at a fundamental truth. I was a friend of mine had this idea of Donald Trump being a kind of a lighthouse who just occasionally, like the light would just fall on some truth. It went round. It was very random, and I, I think it's like a slightly broken lighthouse that just occasionally lands on something. But it landed on something true. There, it's hard to it's hard to argue against that.
3: And I think what's important to see though is that Trump comes to articulate what will be the new consensus. Mm. And that wouldn't be the case, I think, without Made in China 25, if it was just a question of going back to the political shock of the, or the economic shock, I should say, of the early 2000s. It's Made in China 2025 that turns Trump into articulating what will become the new consensus. And it's that we're going to turn to after the break.
0: We've lost six million jobs at least, and now they're starting to come back. But we have one particular problem, and it's China. China. They have barriers that they can trade with us, but we can't trade with them. But we have a trade deficit of $504 billion. We have intellectual property theft. It's just not fair. I've been speaking with the highest Chinese representatives, including the president. And I've asked them to reduce the trade deficit immediately by $100 billion the tremendous money that we've paid since the founding of the World Trade Organization, which has actually been a disaster for us. If they charge us, we charge them the same thing. That's the way it's got to be. The Inflation Reduction Act is also the most significant investment ever in climate change. Lower utility bill, creating American jobs, leading the world to a clean energy future. I visited the devastating aftermath of record floods, droughts, storms, and wildfires. We're rebuilding for the long term. New electric grids clean energy to cut pollution. We're going to build 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations. We're helping families save more than $1,000 a year with tax credits to purchase electric vehicles. Let's
2: face reality. We're still going to need oil and gas for a while. But guess what? No, but there's so much more to do. Obviously, Trump and Biden, they're two very different characters, two very different presidents, obviously. But at the same time, they're pursuing policies which are understandable to each other. In fact, they're not understandable without thinking about the other person. So Biden is really following a policy that Trump has started in 2016. When you had G President Xi, propagandizing a China dream and a China rejuvenation and made in China 2025, you had Donald Trump responding with make America great again and made in America. And you have Biden following him with a foreign policy for the middle class and eventually his signature policy, the Inflation Reduction Act. And these are policies in response to each other, aren't hell, And That's how you have to understand them. And then they affect the rest of the world.
3: We should separate out two things here, which is the trade and tech war with China yeah. that Trump begins and Biden, I would say, takes into another level. And we'll come on to that, and then the inflation reduction act that Biden encouraged Congress to pass. Obviously, initially he was framing that around a green new more around a green new deal than calling this an inflation reduction act. And it's pretty difficult to imagine that Donald Trump would have passed this legislation. But the bit of it that is in the same Trump space that Trump was occupying is it's clear strategic competition with China. context. So what we see from 2015 as a response to the Made in China 2025 announcement is that everything really in American economic policy outside the monetary sphere becomes about strategic competition with China, that the American economy in that sense is becoming geopoliticized quite rapidly. And that is because I think that Made in China 2025 is such a seismic shock in Washington because they begin to see or begin to fear a future in which in the crucial sphere of energy and the energy transition that China will dominate. That in that sense if the age of oil and gas had been an American century. I know that's oversimplifying, I mean, yeah. but there's something in that. Then that the age of low carbon energy would belong to China. And they begin to see that the tech question and China's technological ambition have national security implications for the United States. What we can see then during Trump's presidency is that he moves really to declare a trade war Mm. with China. China then retaliates and that you have a round of exchange of tariffs. But they are actually also negotiating through at least some of that period and it looks like trump's aim is really to use the trade war to reset the terms of trade That he actually does want to get a trade agreement it It is Yeah. yeah and then though he makes a move that i think then biden really doubles down on which is to move it this into being not just a trade war but a tech war and we can see that particularly with the chinese tech form huawei and he really then puts pressure on a number of American allies, including Britain, to basically prevent Huawei being in 5G yeah. networks. And this sets up, I think, the turn that Biden makes into not only accepting the trade war that Trump's declared and actually in the end not resolved, but a tech war against China where China's technological development and use of semiconductors and China's ambition to dominate high-tech manufacturing is seen as completely unacceptable. And the the American state will be used to try to stop that.
2: I think we're living in a more Trumpy world now. We're seeing China through Trump's eyes, in a way, in that until Trump, Obama was wobbling. Obama had the pivot to, to the East, which was really trying to think about China as the great strategic threat and the theater that the U.S. had to concentrate on more than Europe. But he never really followed through on it. It was incoherent because he was still following the policy of engagement and the fundamental idea that opening up to China, engaging with it, and you can bring it into the world system that has been built by the United States. China can just be another power in that same system and a system essentially dominated by the United States, that that goes with Trump and it's gone with Biden. And you see a world on, in much more raw power terms, I think, so that actually China becoming wealthier is itself a threat to American power. It's not just a hundred to one shot, as we talked about in the first section, it, that it has a direct consequence on the West and, and American power. And so you have to respond to that because it's not just about China producing clothes or cheap equipment anymore. It's producing high-end stuff and it's using it to boost its own power and it has its own power aspirations itself and power is relative ultimately. It doesn't work like economics where a rising tide lifts all boats. That's not how power works. And so that sort of brutal way that Trump looked at it, I think has shifted things in the States and it shifted things for the rest of us. And also Xi thinks about the world I think much more like Trump. Xi came to view engagement as a threat to one-party rule in China. He saw the idea that it, that it meant opening, liberalizing China politically as well as economically. So he began a shift against that. But he, I think he was emboldened, surely, by the fact that China, by the time he became leader, was so much more powerful than it had been under Previous leaders, so it seems a kind of obvious endpoint to me that as China gets more powerful, it's going to be more emboldened on the world stage.
3: Choices or the decisions that Xi Jinping made when he came into power, which was two thousand and twelve, are quite complicated to understand. I think trying to understand every anything inside China is is quite difficult. But I think that we can see that by two thousand and eleven that. Chinese growth was really slowing. And so that if China was carrying on on the trajectory that it had was on until that point, I think China was likely to get trapped in this middle-income status. And I think that there's reasonable evidence, at least, that Xi Jinping understood that trajectory needed to change if China
2: wasn't going to become trapped. Do you think it's a position from weakness, then, rather than my idea that it's from strength?
3: I think there's different things going on. I think that if you look at it in terms of China's geopolitical ambitions in the Pacific and in the South China Seas and its ability to develop its navy, I think that's from strength. Right. I think that the economic situation is more difficult for China and because China still has clearly then and still now some really quite difficult economic problems. And I think that what the crucial sort of shift in perspective that Xi Jinping made was not to say that China needs to be very serious about technological innovation that had been true in like in the middle of the 2000s i think there's a like a five year plan in 2006 7 yeah year. all about, you know about turning china into a world leader in science and technology but Xi Jinping with made in china 2025 really turns that into a clear project for substituting western technology with domestic technology including semiconductor chips so the idea being that by 2025 70% of china's semiconductors will come at, from i think it's from 70% from 2 that or maybe by 2030 anyway it sets a target by when 70% of semiconductors have to come from within china Itself, And in some sense, I think that worldview that he has says, look, we need to make the rest of the world dependent upon China, is that we will dominate the high value end, value added end of global supply chains. And instead of us being dependent upon the United States will be dependent upon us. And the reason I think why that's so terrifying in Washington is, is in about 2015 is because they can see certain areas, particularly around metals and the extraction of metals and the processing of metals where that's already true Yeah. by the time that he's saying this. And because metals are bound up with the energy transition, that seems like the future. And then I think, though, what we can see is that when Biden comes in, that the Chinese are really understanding that the tech war is bad news for them and that they are going to be more hurt by it than the Americans, even though they both have this semiconductor chip vulnerability to Taiwan, the reaction then of, of um, Xi Jinping is to move China further away, at least in certain areas from dependence upon the outside world. In that sense, he's made China a more closed
2: place. Which is not economically. necessarily to China's advantage long term. Both sides have this... They're realizing their power, but they have these weaknesses as well. And the United States, as you were saying, was weak in certain areas. I think it had fallen behind on 5G. where That was a big question for Britain, that there wasn't actually an American alternative that we could have when we were looking at getting... Where do we get 5G from? And it ultimately was only Huawei that we could get it from. But but the Americans didn't have an alternative. And with semiconductors being in Taiwan, and you're starting to now hear... Suggestions in the states that if China was to in invade Taiwan or take Taiwan, that the Americans should blow up the semiconductor factories. That has to be a sort of a first order job for the states on national security grounds. That's an extraordinary shift in in where we are, and it just reminds you that the world is more than just trading relationships. That's raw power stuff. That's that just reminds me of sort of Second World War history books.
3: Yeah, and I think what we can see is that both sides in the last couple of years are really trying to reduce quickly their semiconductor dependency upon Taiwan. I think there's a speech that Xi Jinping gives in autumn of last year in which he says that it's a matter of urgent national security for there to be technological breakthroughs where semiconductors are concerned the US Congress passes the Chips and Science Act in July 2022, so July of last year, again, behind that, the idea that the US has to have a domestic semiconductor industry. And I think that, particularly perhaps over the last 18 months, as tensions over Taiwan have escalated, is the sense that actually there's something that is incredibly dangerous about both sides' dependency on an island which is actually central to the geopolitical tensions Amazing that we've got here between them and you could say you could perhaps say that from the American point of view that a world in which they can move to some level of semiconductor if not self-sufficiency at least dependency on states on countries that are allies would allow more autonomy or more discretion for itself about what to do about the Taiwan question because obviously a world in which China took Taiwan whilst the American economy was still dependent yeah. upon the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company would be an incredibly dangerous world. Yeah, they won't the,
2: that's for, why they'd rather blow for it. For the
3: United States. And But the alternative is actually to develop, to escape the dependency. And I think that's where we can see the moves that the Biden administration has been making. And I think if we go back then to the Inflation Reduction Act, a significant part of that is about trying to break metal dependency, metal processing dependency upon China and saying that has to take place either in states that the United States has a free trade agreement with, and in some sense that preferably means Mexico and Canada, but all states that the United States now says are crucial to American national security, regardless of whether there's a free trade agreement. So effectively, I think from something that was said the last week or the week before, that Australia will be treated for these purposes as part of the, effectively as a state that the US has a free trade agreement with, even though it
2: actually doesn't. Really, Yeah, I hadn't realised that. I love the way the Americans call their various act, the Inflation Reduction Act and all this. It's essentially the, the Keep America Global Number One Act. That's the that's the purpose of this. And I think what we're going to turn to after the break is the effect of that on the rest of the world, outside of China and the States, and particularly here in in Europe and Britain.
1: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. It's an honor to welcome President Xi to Downing Street. Marks a key moment in the relationship between our two countries. The more we trade together, the more we have a stake in each other's success, and the more we understand each other, the more that we can work together to confront the problems that face our world today. We should increase our financial and economic cooperation with the UK as the partner of choice for China in the West visit marks the start of a new era, a golden era. In a period of just four years, China launched new warships exceeding the combined tonnage of the Royal Navy fleet. We are bound to ask ourselves, why is China making this colossal military investment? We will always put our national security first. Britain will soon be the 12th member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we've joined the United States to help Australia to build nuclear-powered, conventionally armed submarines, I reject any notion of inevitability. Dealing with China is not a job for the faint-hearted. They represent a ruthless authoritarian tradition, but we have an obligation to future generations to engage.
2: So in those clips, you heard David Cameron declaring a new golden age of China-UK relations in 2015. God, it feels like a long time ago, but it was in 2015. And the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly recently making his big set-piece speech on British-China relations, obviously sounding very different there. So the trajectory is very similar to the United States in how quickly we've shifted. If anything, Britain has shifted more than any country on earth in its china relations or so it seems from the the big picture we've gone from a position really not very long ago where we were the london was the first international clearing center for chinese currency it had raced ahead of its competitors there to become the big offshore center for chinese currency we'd signed off on Huawei delivering 5G here we had chinese investment in our nuclear facilities and then you had obviously david cameron there trying to really set a a strategy for Britain, we would become China's preferred destination for investment in Europe or in the West, really. We, were, we wanted to be China's best friend in the West. There was obviously a certain economic logic to that. It was similar to the logic that Margaret Thatcher had about getting Japanese investment into the UK in the 80s. And it was based on Britain being in the European Union so the best place to invest, and then we can we can just ruthlessly make money out of Chinese economic growth. And that all collapsed with Brexit, Trump, Made in China 2025, and the reality of the world in which we live. And we've had to shift with that. It does seem remarkable that we got that bet so wrong. When you go back and read that James Cleverley speech, we are still holding on to some hopes of that that world can be kept alive. We're not giving up on it entirely. Even through Theresa May and Boris Johnson and now Rishi Sunak, there is this idea that we can somehow balance in the world between our alliance with the United States and the reality of of Chinese economic wealth, that we still want a bit of that if we can. And Cleverly actually doesn't give up on that, even though he sounds quite hard there. So you can see how the competition between the United States and China, how difficult it is for countries in Europe and elsewhere to somehow try and hedge their bets on this, to try and stay aligned with the United States on whose security, we, their security guarantee would depend, depend on and trying to stay economically wealthy.
3: Yeah, I think that they really striking thing about the Cameron Osborne period was not just the embrace of China and the kind of language that both Cameron and Osborne used about that but the willingness actually to move away from what the Americans wanted in that period. So this is the Obama presidency and the Obama administration didn't want European states joining the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank through which China's Belt and Road Initiative was financed. And I think Britain was the first European we were the first, con- we're still a member. to to join. So there was actually a willingness to take a hit on the a bit of a hit anyway, like on the Atlantic relationship at that point. And I think, as you said, Tom, that London's position as a financial centre was seen as the particular way in which Britain could exploit yeah. the China's position in the in the world economy. I think the fact that, that position, I wouldn't say it collapsed, but became much, much more difficult, pretty much around the same time as the Brexit referendum. yeah, It was like two different shocks were happening yeah. to British politics at the same time. I don't think it's right to think that, that Britain was as badly hurt by the US-China trade war as Germany was. No. I think that the German economy got into some real difficulties in 2018 because it was caught up in that I think though what happened was that the turn in Washington meant that people in London had to start thinking in national security terms about Britain's relationship economically with China. But I think the really crucial turning point was then in 2020 in May 2020 to be more precise when essentially the Chinese government ripped up the agreement on Hong Kong. Yeah. And that is when I think that Johnson's administration, which had tried, despite all the pressure that Trump was putting on, to still carve at least least a semi-independent road on China, that came to
2: an end. Came crashing down.
3: But I think that we've seen in the last few months, and I think you can even see this in the difference in the language between the integrated security view from, review from was 2021 to the refreshing of it this year, that there's an attempt, I think, to pull back, as you said, to say, OK, we can't just give up on, on, on having a relatively deep economic relationship with China. But at the same time, you have British politicians, including, obviously, Sunak himself, who's saying, look, we must face the problem of the British economy's semiconductor dependency yeah. upon Taiwan. So in that sense, Britain's had to do what the Americans have done, but it can't possibly do it anything like the scale. Yeah. So I think that probably 50 times more money, government money going into semiconductor development and subsidies in the US than what's going on in
2: Britain. Yeah, it was buffeted, aren't we, by the winds from the United States constantly. I do think it's interesting that how... Cameron, as you were saying, Cameron Osborne were trying to were prepared to pay a bit of a price diplomatically with the states to pursue this policy. But actually, so was Theresa May, in that she resisted pressure and believed that she could maintain national security while dealing with Huawei. And actually, so did Boris Johnson. They have continued to try to carve out an independent policy. But when push comes to shove the united states can turn the dial the pressure up enough that it forces a change of position before liz truss became prime minister when she was foreign secretary i actually put this to her and she denied it furiously that it had anything to do with the united states pressure that in her words britain had changed policy on huawei because it was the right thing to do but that's obviously nonsense it was that the u.s had put sanctions on huawei so that the British security service can no longer guarantee the security of dealing with Huawei in Britain. And the the Americans knew what they were doing and forced a change of position from the UK. And so I think that is quite illustrative of where we are going here in the future in our relationship with China. We are going to try and strike an independent policy as much as we possibly can. But we are ultimately going to choose, I think, the United States whenever the United States Puts enough pressure on us to do so. But
3: something. I think that there's a separate question going on, which is how does Britain, any British government, respond to the economic, geopolitical competition between the US and yeah. China? Because I think on the security questions, when the Americans say it's national security, then the British government is going to get into line. And indeed, the british government i think several under successive prime ministers now have wanted britain to play a bigger security role in the indo-pacific yeah and that AUKUS is part of that but there's more to it than that i think as well but being willing to act as one of the united states principal European allies, I think only the French can really say that they're engaged in the Indo-Pacific in the same way in a security sense. It's not the same as knowing what to do about the (laughs) geopolitical economic competition between the US and China. And I think you can see that over the semiconductor question where what we do looks feeble. And to the extent that it's not feeble is the premise of the policy still is we need to be integrated into global supply chains. We just don't want them dominated by China. yeah. And we can see it in relation to the Inflation Reduction Act because that forces really hard choices on all European countries because it's basically the Americans saying, at the moment, we recognise that China dominates some crucial supply chains around the transition to low carbon energy. We want to change that. We're going to change that by, doing, by using subsidies and tax credits. And we're going to treat an area which is essentially the United States plus free trade areas yeah. as the core. And obviously every European country, both individually for countries outside the European Union and for the European Union itself are outside that because they don't have free trade agreements. And they're not because they're not got lots of metals. They're not going to get the treatment that Australia gets as a place which is rich in these minerals. And so the choice then becomes what do you do as that, for for the European Union of Individual Countries like Britain. What do you do as that competition plays itself out? Where do you situate yourself? And it's hard to see in the British case how the answer isn't going to be get closer to the United States in terms of trade, maybe even have to pursue a free trade agreement with the
2: United States. That seems a logical endpoint. That is a fascinating juncture, isn't it, of our post-Brexit world. If we pursue that aggressively and somehow manage to get it, then that puts us into a very different future as the trade war hots up with between the United States and China to where Europe might go and whether Europe will then pursue a trade deal with the United States if that's possible. You're starting to see ideas bubbling up, but no coherent or policy yet. I think Liz Truss had an idea of turning the G7, I think, into what she called an economic NATO, which was, again, it's this, you're getting at similar ideas about linking the parts of the world, the democracies, essentially. or You're linking the West together economically and and strategically and in secu- and security insecurity as well. But I think... President Biden had the idea of a summit of democracies. I don't think that actually ever happened. Britain had the idea of what it called the, turning the G7 into a D10, that's like a democratic 10, so get Australia on board. And that obviously lines up with AUKUS, this deal that Boris Johnson managed to wrestle away from the French linking Australia, the United States, and the UK. I think Canada now wants to get on board with AUKUS. Uh, and then you've got all of these are lining up On top of each other, not cleanly, but you also have Five Eyes, which are those countries, and New Zealand. So you can start to see a future world which becomes a bit more coherent and is effectively all revolving around the United States still.
3: But I think that we can also see, though, that there's a clear alternative worldview of how to deal with this that's been articulated in Paris. Yeah. Yeah. Which would not accept the idea of anything remotely like an economic NATO. Mm-hmm. Because for Macron, the moment requires reinvigorating, as he sees it, a long-standing project, at least in his mind, of strategic European autonomy. His view is clearly that in this world of Sino-American economic competition, that Europe needs to claw back its strategic autonomy, that it can't be forced yeah. into making that choice. And I think you can see then in terms of the reaction in European capitals, not least in Paris to the US Inflation Reduction Act, that has really complicated the strategic autonomy project because it's making it clear that the United States is going to compete very directly, without much regard for the consequences for European countries. So it's going to compete very directly with China in the in over the low-carbon energy future. And in a way it's saying to trying to say to the european union to european countries you need to get on side with us but that's clearly not acceptable in paris or indeed in berlin and we can actually see that merkel in her last months in office and, and macron really tried to send a message i think to biden at the beginning of his presidency by agreeing the eu china investment agreement at the end of 2020 look we're going to do our own thing here we're not going to be subservient to you yeah you can see that as well in in macron's visit to china quite recently yeah
2: yeah i mean macron in beijing and took uh von der leyen with him president of the european council you can look at both von der leyen's speech about the future of eu china relations that she made in brussels and you can look at macron's speech in beijing and you see the subtle differences so von der leyen's speech is much more in line with that story that we've been telling during this episode of the United States shifting its position on China, Britain shifting its position on China to deal with the reality of what China is becoming under Xi, which is more autarkic, more more nationalistic, more, more militarily ag- aggressive. And so if you look at von der Leyen's speech, he is saying, we have seen a very deliberate hardening of China's overall strategic posture for some time, more repressive at home and more assertive abroad, the Chinese Communist Party's clear goal is systemic change of the international order with China at its center. so you can see how von der Leyen's speech is similar in tone and content to what Jen cleverly is saying in London and what the Americans are saying in 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 Washington, but she's trying to the policy that she's come up with, which is to just to deal with the concerns in Paris or the idea of strategic autonomy in paris and the concerns in Berlin about maintaining economic relations with China is to, in quote, de-risk, not decouple. And that is something that is purposeful. The language is purposeful because that is something that is being talked about by people like Janet Yelland in the States as well. They're talking about de-risking, not decoupling, because people can understand that the economic consequences of just decoupling, which is pulling the two economies apart, is too great to really be able to comprehend so there's ideas like economic resilience and restrictions against Chinese firms in some critical sectors. So I think the EU is sh- shifting towards an American position, but Macron, who is in line with that, but he puts the emphasis more on on maintaining EU strategic autonomy. I sympathise with Macron's position because I think there is obviously a kind of certain essential dignity to that. If you were Europe surely you do want to be able to make your own decisions in relation to China by yourself and not be completely dependent on the United States. I emotionally sympathise with that. At the same time, I just not I can't wrap my head around whether it's at all possible. Do you think it's possible, Helen, Given, given Ukraine and everything?
3: I think that it's very difficult for any European country and the European Union to deal with the, in some sense, the economic realities of the world as it is at the moment and they're not at all friendly I think to the project of strategic autonomy for Europe. I don't think that they're friendly in terms of the energy transition where metals are concerned. I don't think that they're helpful for European countries where the semiconductor chip issue is concerned and I think it's quite striking that the latest move really from the British government under Sunak has been to deal with, the, or try anyway, to deal with the semiconductor chip issue by getting closer to Japan yeah. and the Hiroshima Accord that was presented last month when hmm. Sunak was in Tokyo. And it's clear, I think, that Japan is in a relatively strong position in terms of attracting investment in semiconductors, and indeed there was a recent meeting in Tokyo of the large chip companies, including the Taiwan Semiconducting Manufacturing Company with Japan's Prime Minister, that that in a way is the logic of what Sunak's done here in terms of trying to move into a closer relationship with Japan, including, in a way, trying to leverage Britain's position in the Indo-Pacific making some agreements about joint military exercises with Japan. Now, whether all that adds up to a coherent strategy in terms of the complexities of the way the world is at the moment may be another matter. But I think it it is at least a semi-strategic turn that's been made by the British government and one that doesn't quite look like the position that the European Union is in. Now, I think there's lots of ways in which the European Union, because of its size... Has obviously got advantages that Britain doesn't have in adjusting to this world of Sino-American competition. But I think that we're beginning to see the shape of what a post-Brexit post made in China 2025 British foreign policy might look like. And I'm sure that's a point that we're going to return to in subsequent episodes.
2: Lovely. I didn't quite expect to finish on such a note of optimism about Britain's coherence, but it does look like we're almost blindfolded. We may have alighted somehow on a sort of semi-coherent. I'm not sure it was optimism,
3: <laughs> we can talk about that in the future.
2: Thanks for listening to These Times and to all of you who have helped put the show in the top 10 most listened to news podcasts in the UK. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, here comes the usual plea to subscribe, share with your family and friends, leave a review. Or just shout about it from the rooftops
3: if you have any questions please do get in touch with us you can email us at these times at unheard.com or tweet us at these times pod capital T for these capital T for times capital P for pod and we'll try to answer your questions in a future episode